Turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel according to John chapter 1. We read the first 18 verses we take as our text, verse 14. We hear the inspired word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word in our hearts. We take, as I stated, our text from verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time is presented here in John 1 as the dawning of a great, a glorious light. John approaches the incarnation differently than the other gospel narratives. The other gospel narratives speak of the babe being born in a manger. Not John. John speaks of light shining in the midst of darkness. The true light. Think of a house where all of the blinds are pulled down. They're all closed. And it's dark. It's dreary in that home. But then someone goes into the house and goes from room to room opening up the blinds. And as a result, light begins to filter in through the windows. And pretty soon the darkness is dispelled and the brightness of the light illuminates that home. That's the wonder that is being spoken of here. In the midst of the darkness of sin, depravity, and death, 
God shone a great light that illuminated the world and displayed the greatness of his glory. Zacharias had testified of that wonder of Jesus coming as illuminating the people who were in the midst of darkness. In Luke 1 verse 79, we have his prophecy to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. If it's dark, we can't see the way to go. But the light shines, and now because of that light illuminating our pathway, we're able to see the way that we're able to go. The truths of God and His glory, when made known to our hearts, shine with a brilliance that removes the gloom, it takes away the sorrow, and it strengthens us and illuminates the path that we're to walk on. We feel that gloom and that sorrow within us. There are physical afflictions of the body that weigh on us, that keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And as a result, there's a gloom, there's a sorrow that often descends upon us. We feel that gloom sometimes with bouts of depression. We're in a fog. Our minds aren't able to think as clearly as we would desire. And as a result then, there are times of darkness, times of depression that descend upon us. There are other times when that gloom comes upon us because it feels as though our lives have been ruined. It seems like our lives are a mess. We don't know which way is up, which way is down. We just don't know where to turn any longer in the midst of that darkness and that struggle. In the midst of the darkness that is due to physical, spiritual, emotional struggles, the light, the glorious light of the gospel shone. God sent his own son in order to dispel that darkness and to reveal the wonder and the greatness of his love and his compassion for sinners. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We look at that wonder this morning, noting the glory of the Son. Noting first the wonder, secondly the glory, and then finally the prophet. The Word was made flesh. In the fullness of time, God came and performed the greatest wonder that he'd ever performed by causing his own eternal son to be born in human flesh. For the sake of the salvation of his beloved church and for his glory, God performed this greatest of wonders. As we read the Bible, we read of all kinds of different wonders. God is a God who performs wonders. And we stand in awe of all the various wonders displayed in the scriptures. The wonder of creation. God speaking and everything coming into being as though it were. God causing wonders to take place throughout all of nature, all of creation. Wonders that move us to praise and to exalt his name. We stand in awe of those wonders displayed. The wonders of raising individuals from the dead performing mighty feats that resulted in the preserving of his children, fighting battles on their behalf. In the midst of all these wonders, God in the fullness of time displays the wonder among all wonders. And the words of our text 
describe that wonder of wonders. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word there, a reference to the second person of the Trinity, as the second person of the Trinity now, as God's own Son came into human flesh. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 puts it this way, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The mystery of godliness. With these words, God sets forth the truth of the incarnation. That is, Almighty God coming into human flesh. Without ceasing to be God. Remaining in the greatness of His glory. He now becomes what He was not. A human being. So that the incarnation is not a matter of subtraction. He was God, now he's merely a man and no more God. Rather, it's a matter of addition. He who was God now adds even more than that. Now he's fully human, a real human being. Jesus uniting himself to our flesh, not to lay it down, but to exalt it and to raise it even to heights unknown before. Heights of glory. That's the wonder, beloved, that we confess in this season. We celebrate not a mere babe. We celebrate the Son of God come into human flesh. Martin Luther put it profoundly. The Word introduced Himself into that which He was not in order that the nature of man also might become what it was not resplendent by its union with the grandeur of divine majesty which has been raised beyond nature rather than that it has cast the unchangeable God beneath its nature. Jesus coming into human flesh not to bring that flesh down but to raise that flesh and to exalt it to heights never before imagined. This marvel, beloved, we celebrate at Christmas not only, but every day of our lives. The wonder of wonders by which the Son of God came into human flesh and dwelt among us. He who was creator became himself a creature born of man. Just think again of the profound wonder of this. He who was eternal now took upon himself a body that was subject to time. He who is unchangeable, infinite in all of his works and ways, now after being born, had to continue to develop, to grow with age and with time. So that Jesus took upon himself a human nature while at the same time he was eternal God. When he was a young boy, his parents would teach him. The Son of God taught of sinful parents. The Son of God who knew everything. Yet, as a human, in a human nature, growing in his understanding, marveling even at certain things as he had opportunity 
and in certain circumstances. Again, beloved, it's difficult for our finite minds to wrap around this wonder. Almighty God coming into human flesh. And here's ultimately the question we ask. Why did God do this? Why would God do this? Why would God ordain all of this? And there's one answer that reverberates through the pages of Scripture. Jesus did this in order to make sinners like you and me his treasure. That's the answer that we find through the pages of Scripture. The glory of God displayed in this manner in order that he could take a wretch like me and turn me into a precious treasure that he will preserve and keep to all eternity. The Holy One, the second person of the Trinity, united with a human and a divine nature, remaining forever God in man, Emmanuel. One person taking on two natures. The person of the second person of the Son of God in a human and a divine nature. Why? For us and for our salvation. Beloved, this is the truth that we need to think about. Do you think about that? What did God do for me? We need to think about this. We ought to contemplate this wonder often throughout the day. The incarnation is not just a theological marvel. The incarnation is a practical wonder that displays the marvelous character of the love of God for a sinner, a wretch like me. And that requires of us meditation. It requires of us contemplation. We read, we reread these words of John 1. We read the gospel narratives and we stand in awe. Again, why would God do this? What was God's motive? What was God to gain through this? We're humbled. As we try to wrap our mind around this wonder, we ask, what kind of a human nature did Jesus take upon himself? And the answer is that Jesus took a human nature that was just like ours in every respect, sin accepted. We talk about five things. The Heidelberg Catechism class this past week, studying Lord's Day 14, looked at those five things. And so for you, this is review. What are the five things that Jesus took upon himself as pertains to his nature? We can say about his nature that, first of all, his human nature was a real human nature. There were times in the Bible where angels appeared as humans, but they didn't have a real human nature. It was just an appearance. It was just for a time. That was not the case with Jesus. Jesus did not take merely the appearance of a human for a time. He took on himself a real human nature. He was a real man. His human nature was consisting of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. He had a heart. He had lungs. He had a liver. He had cells. He had blood vessels. He had muscles. He had bones that could be broken, but strikingly, not a bone was broken according to God's prophecy concerning the Messiah. It was a complete, 
a real human nature. But secondly, it was a complete human nature. A real human nature and a complete one. That is, body, soul, and spirit. Just like ours. Through the ages, there were those who constantly were casting into question the character and nature of Jesus' human nature. And they would insist, for instance, that Jesus had a divine spirit, but then a human body, or perhaps a divine soul in a human body. The reality of those errors was this. Jesus was not fully human, nor was he fully divine. He was kind of a mix. And if that was the case, then Jesus would not be able to represent us fully. He would not be just like us in all things. The Bible insists that he took upon himself a body, a soul, and a spirit that were human. A body and a soul that were through the Virgin Mary. And when Jesus died, his body and soul were separated for a time. He committed his soul, his spirit to God. His body remained in the grave until his body was raised again on the third day. And then it was reunited again with his spirit, with his soul. That wonder, we confess, a real human nature, a complete human nature. Thirdly, it was a central, individual human nature that came as the seed of the woman from the seed of Mary. God had prophesied of the fact that the Messiah would come out of David. And the Messiah would be that which would be the seed of the woman. And as such then, Jesus was of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. He was of David's lineage. Mary was not merely a surrogate who carried something that was not of her flesh and blood. Mary gave birth to one who was of her flesh and blood. Her egg was involved, the Holy Spirit causing it to be fertilized, and the Holy Spirit working that wonder. So it has prophesied, Jesus came then, flesh and blood, out of a specific line, the line of David, in order to sit on David's throne forever. And as such, then, at the center, at the heart of the revelation of God with regard to mankind. The fourth, he took upon himself a weakened human nature. And that simply means it was just like ours again. It was subject to sickness, subject to death. It was that which got tired. So that as Jesus was ministering on earth and as he was busy in the work, he would get tired. He would get hungry. He would get thirsty. So tired he got that... He was able to sleep in a boat in the midst of a storm. Jesus sighed at times. He wept. He was like us in our weakness. Finally, that, sinful na that human nature was sinless. Like ours in every respect, but without sin. No sin. And that made him different from every man that ever had lived. Every single human being that ever lived had a human father. And through that human father, the depravity of Adam was passed on to that one. Jesus had no human father. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, so that as a human, though he knew temptation, he never sinned and could not sin. There's a marvel there for us too. How is it that he could understand temptation and yet not even be able 
to sin. He never strayed from the will of his father. And yet, temptation was real for him according to his human flesh. How was it that he was sinless? Again, his person is the divine person of the Son of God, God himself. And his incarnation, by the wonder of the Spirit, through the Virgin. How did God work this wonder? Marvelously by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and accomplished this wonder of conception. No human involvement, no human father. And it's important that we maintain that confession concerning the virgin birth. This wonder is necessary, absolutely necessary for our salvation. Jesus came not according to the will of man. He came according to the will of God. And he escaped original sin, original guilt, original pollution by having that divine person within the human and divine natures according to this marvelous wonder. God performing a wonder above all wonders. Salvation is all of God. God performing a wonder that no man could ever have even dreamt of or imagined. And God working the faith in our hearts by which we lay hold upon this. This is the truth of the Incarnation. Salvation is of God. And we rejoice in the wonder of wonders that the triune God, Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all together performed this work. Now our text stresses the glory of this wonder. And that's what we want to look at secondly. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. In what ways is the glory of Jehovah God displayed through the wonder of the Incarnation? John talks here about beholding the glory of God as that which was a visible manifestation from an invisible God. We can't see God. God's invisible. But God now revealed something that we could see in order to convey the wonder of His glory. We think about God's glory and the manifesting of that glory. Again, as it's displayed in the pages of the Bible. As we worked our way through Exodus, we noted Moses beholding the glory of God in the bush that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. And Moses standing in awe of that glory displayed that he didn't even dare look. He saw, as it were, the glory of God in all of its marvelous character. That glory was revealed in the pillar of fire by night. It was displayed on Mount Sinai in the thunders and in the marvelous revelation of God concerning the law. That glory of God was demonstrated at the dedication of the tabernacle, again at the dedication of the temple, So through the history of the Bible, we see that glory on display where the heights of glory were manifest and the believers were required to fall on their faces in awe and in wonder. The transfiguration allowed the disciples that were present there to get a bit of a glimpse, a window into the greatness of God's glory. 
And we realize that all eyes don't see that glory. That glory is a glory that's revealed to believing men and women. God working faith in the hearts of some in order that they might see the absolute greatness and the majesty of God, the moral perfection of the being of God, of His holiness, His grace, His truth. Now what is it that the incarnation especially manifests regarding God's glory? Thinking upon this and pondering on it, two things especially stand out. God's glory is demonstrated in so many different ways, but the incarnation especially displays the glory of God in His compassion towards sinners. And secondly, it displays the glory of God in the condescension, the humiliation of the Son. Especially in those two ways, we see the glory of God on the foreground here in the incarnation. First of all, the Father's compassion. What stands out as we think upon, as we meditate upon the Son of God coming into human flesh is the marvelous compassion of God for sinners. This is the love, the care that God had for His church. This is what God is like. That's the point of our text here. What is God like? God is a God who reveals himself to sinners in order to show love and compassion to them. He's a God whose compassion is so great that he's willing to give his own beloved son in human flesh in order that he might lift those who are enslaved to death and sin and bring them to the glory of of his own majesty. Why again did the Son leave the bosom of the Father in order to come into human flesh? Because of his tender compassion for those whom the Father had given him. Why was the Word sent from heaven down to earth? The best answer we would give is because of God's love, God's grace, God's tender compassion toward that people that he had chosen from eternity and now given to his own son. How wondrous, beloved. The glory of God displayed in his compassion toward sinners. We're familiar with Lamentations 3, verse 22, a beautiful passage expressing that tender, loving compassion of God. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Our God is a God who's infinite in compassion. His compassion knows no limit. He's tender toward those who are the objects of His love and His pity. His tenderness, his compassion was displayed in the garden when he came to Adam and Eve after they sinned. He looked them up. They had cast themselves already into the hopelessness of sin and darkness. He comes to them and he looks them up in compassion and pity toward them. And he gives promise. The promise of the coming of the seed of the woman. And through the history of the 
Church, what does God do? Again and again, God is showing pity. He's showing tender compassions. He's showing His love and His care toward His church. He knows our weakness. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He institutes baptism, the sacraments, for us in order that we might have something visual, better to understand the marvelous character of His love, His pity, and His compassion toward us in Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord is revealed in that compassion. And he reveals that compassion also in the manner that he sent Jesus to come to us. How did Jesus come to earth? The Father sent his Son with a towel. He came as a servant. He came in order to serve us. He came to wipe our tears away. He came to comfort us and to minister to us. He came in order to show pity. Jesus leaving the bosom of his Father in order to come from those heights to depths that he could never have fathomed so that he could wipe away our tears, remove from us our sins and lift us to heights of glory that we could not even begin to fathom. What a compassion, beloved. And the question we ask ourselves is this, do I know this God? Do I desire to know this God? This God of pity and compassion do I know this God and the glory and the wonder of His love toward me and the extent to which He went for me and for my salvation? There's so many times when we struggle and sometimes we struggle and we find it challenging to see God's hand in our life, to see God's glory, to see God's love, to see how it is that God's directing the course of our life. And then God brings us to our knees. And God demonstrates the compassion, the pity that he had for us. And beloved, this wasn't a compassion without cost. This was a compassion that cost him his own son. What glory, what majesty displayed for the sake of his church. And then there's this aspect of it too. How do I judge my life? How do I determine how things are going in my life? Sometimes I'm despairing. I'm filled with sorrows. I look at my life and I think I'm a disaster. I think my life is all in vain. Filled with sorrows, filled with struggles, where do I look? Beloved, don't look at self. Don't look at the things that I've accomplished or the areas I've failed. Behold the glory of the Almighty God and see your value in this wonder the eternal God of heaven and earth showed his compassion toward me in that he sent his own son to come into my flesh for me how are things going the compassion of my God knows no end for me. Oh yes, there's struggles, there's challenges, there's difficulties. But knowing the eternal glory and the compassion of my Heavenly Father, 
all will be well. I'm lifted in the midst of my struggles. I'm able to know the wonder of the love that he has toward me. And that compassion is what dictates my attitude. It dictates the answer to the question, how things are going in my life. I know the wonder of the glory of my Heavenly Father in the compassion that He's shown to me, a sinner. But then also in this, the condescension of Jesus, His Son. The compassion of the Father, the humiliation of the Son. He who was God, to whom nothing could be added or taken from, stepped into our flesh. And that was just the beginning. Taking on our flesh was just the beginning. He came into our flesh. Then what did he do? He even stooped lower. He not only took upon himself a place within the womb of a woman, but then he numbered himself among a family that was not highly exalted. A family of despised sinners such as Rahab, Ruth, David, Tamar, Judah. These are the ones whom he claimed as among his descendants. And then he was born into poverty in a manger. And then he was willing to live his life under sinful parents, subject to them, to have sinful siblings that were troubling him, toward whom he constantly showed good, turning the cheek. Surrounding himself on this earth with sinners, including Judas, who would betray him. The willingness of our Lord to humble himself to such measures. And then, the greatest humiliation of all, to take our place in hell. Philippians 2 talks about this humiliation. It uses striking terms. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2 notes that humiliation. And in connection with it, note, it, note what it does. It admonishes us. It admonishes us, let that mind be in you. This is what Jesus did for you. Let that mindset of a willingness to give of himself for the sake of others 
now dwell within you. He came with a towel in order to wipe the feet of his disciples. The master was willing to stoop to such levels. There was nothing Jesus was not willing to do for you. He was willing to do anything that was necessary for you and for me and for our salvation, even to the extent of going to hell for you and for me. And so strikingly there, in Philippians 2 then, the question is asked, are you willing to give of yourself for the sake of others and for the sake of his glory? And doesn't that prick you? It pricks me. How often don't we say, oh, I, I'm willing to do this, but that? No, 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 no. I'm not willing to go that far for that one. Forgive that one? Go to that one? Do that for my siblings? I'll do this, but I'm not willing to go that far. To do this for my husband? To do that for my wife? I'm willing to do some chores, but that? I draw the line. I'm not going that far. I won't stoop that low. If that mind had been in Jesus, we would all be doomed. That's not what Jesus thought when it came to you and to me. And God says, let this mind, this attitude that Jesus had be in you. Behold the glory of your heavenly Father who had such compassion and pity for you that he sent his own Son who was willing to humble himself even unto death in your place. That's glory. That's beauty. That's dazzling beauty. That's the wonder of the brilliant light of the glory of God shining in the midst of the darkness of my sinfulness and my depravity. What attitude does God have toward me? Herein lays the wonder of His love. And what attitude does He work within me as His child? An attitude of humility. An attitude of servanthood. A willingness to consider others better than myself. That wonder works fruit. And God works the fruit that is evident here in our text, full of grace and truth. That's the prophet that we see. There was a child on earth who was innocent. He was God's son, the son of the highest. He had one holy flame for the love of God. And that flame for the love of God burned in him toward God or, and those whom the Father had given him. And God says, herein is love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. And that he gave his own son in order to cover your sins. In the sight of God, your sins are covered. That's the wonder of God's grace. And that covering is the gift of God. By faith we lay hold on that wonder. And by faith we lay hold upon the greatness of the glory of the incarnation as that wonder that displayed God's grace toward me. I know Him. I embrace Him in love. And I know His compassion toward me, an undeserving sinner. And I confess then, 
perfect righteousness is mine. He's covered me with His righteousness. And now I know the fullness of the wonder of His life as that light and that life shines within me. Confessing my sin and looking to Jesus Christ. God gives us to know a grace that far surpasses anything that we've ever been able to show to anyone else. Again, there's no boasting. That grace has been shown to me. And that grace is shown to me in a never-ending manner. That's the marvelous way in which it's expressed here in verse 16. And of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. The idea there of grace as a never-ending stream that continues to flow to us in our need. And again, the compassion. The compassion of our Heavenly Father for us sinners. Not holding us to an account for every sin, but showing grace. Unending grace in the midst of our sin. And that grace signifies the free love of God as He reaches to His children through the incarnation and through the cross and He saves and He beautifies them and He causes them then to reflect the virtues of their Heavenly Father. Grace and truth. Truth standing for the reality of the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. In Christ we abide. In Christ we receive from Him that grace. And in Him we grow as the Spirit leads us into the truth and the Spirit reveals to us the wonder and the greatness of that grace. And so, beloved, we who sit in the shadow of darkness have experienced a glorious light. What is your darkness? What is my darkness? Each of us, in a sense, has a different darkness. For some, it's sitting in the realm of the reality of death, as death has touched us in this past year. For others, it's medical issues and struggling with the difficulties and the darkness and the difficulties that are related to those medical issues. For others, it's struggles in the family, difficulties with children, grandchildren, struggles with siblings, with spouses. For all of us, we sit in the experience of the knowledge of our sin and our sinfulness and the shame and the guilt of that sin. Sometimes we're inclined to say, my sin is so great that if others would know about it, they'd cast me out. If my wife knew all my sin, she'd run me out of the house. If my husband knew everything that I was responsible and guilty of, if the church knew what I'd all done, they would never have a place for me. We know the horror of that sin. We know how that sin has enslaved us at times in our life. Beloved, in the midst of our darkness, God shines a glorious light, a light of compassion, a light of pity, a light by which we see the glory of God revealed in that one born in Bethlehem, the Word in human flesh. And we know in Him unending compassion. We know in Him unending forgiveness. We experience in Him the wonder of the truth that's revealed in Jesus Christ. Knowing this God and the greatness 
of His compassion and love for us, what is our response? To serve Him and to glorify Him forever. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, work in us the wonder of the Incarnation. Not just a theological marvel, but a practical wonder displaying the compassion and love of the Father, the humiliation of the Son, and working in us that worship and that desire to serve and to glorify Thee. Amen.